Hey everyone, it's Carvel. And last week, I traveled to Seattle to do a live recording with the incredible visual artist Sandra Perry at the Seattle Art Museum. We talked about race and the future and displacement and overcoming the limits of our own imaginations. And as you can imagine, it was an incredible discussion. And I'm really excited for you guys to hear it. So here it is. Please join me in welcoming Carvel Wallace to the stage. Good evening, and thank you for being here. Um, and thanks, Philip and Seattle Art Museum, for having us here for this. Uh, I'm excited, and um, I'm going to read an essay, but I'm going to tell you a little bit about where that essay came from before I bring Sandra Perry to the stage. Um, in 2016, actually early, late 2015, I was um, commissioned by the now defunct general interest website, The Toast, to write about uh, the Negro Motorist Screen Book, which is a publication that ran in the United States from about 1934, I think, to about 1964. And for those who don't know, the Negro Motorist Screen Book was, in, in a sense, a prototypical Yelp. It was um, a crowdsourced collection of um, services, stores, gas stations, hotels, uh, barbershops, uh, restaurants, etc., where black travelers could safely stay when they were making their journeys to visit family and do other things across the United States. And it was uh, the brainchild of a, of a postman who lived in New Jersey. And uh, he essentially gathered all of this information from different people who were travelers. And um, each year this book came out and was updated with um, reviews and people sort of put their, um, you know, their names in there. If, if you run a restaurant, you want to make sure that black people know they're safe to eat at this restaurant. Should they be traveling through Mississippi or West Virginia or Kansas or whatever, then you would make sure that your restaurant was listed in the Negro Motorist Green Book. And so I was asked to write something about this book for the toast. And I thought long and hard about how to do it. And when I was looking through the book, they have some archival copies, including one at Stanford University. And I went down and got a look at it. It was the 19... 56 edition, I think. And I got a chance to handle it and see it. And it was this, uh, this incredible labor of love, this kind of like, um, you know, this DIY. It was a zine, basically. It was like a prototypical zine. And one of the things that struck me was that in addition to these businesses, they also had listed private residences that were guest houses, where people sort of said like, okay, I live at, you know, 5168 Fifth Avenue, and, uh, and people can stay at my house. And this is my phone number. It's you know, it's, it's Hilltop 7856 or whatever it is. And so I was fascinated by this. And I wondered what the stories were for all these people. Who are these families? What, what has happened to them since? And so what I decided to do was to find an address in my hometown of Oakland, or the town I live in now of Oakland, and see if I could find that house today in 2016. And if I could find the family that was listed there, and if I could somehow, through records and ancestry and so on and so forth, trace that family to today, find out if they were still here, whatever happened to them. So I found this address, it was 3157 Grove Street. And Grove Street no longer exists in Oakland. It's been renamed Martin Luther King Boulevard. But it was Grove Street back then. And so I found this address. There were two addresses listed in Oakland. One was in West Oakland, one was in North Oakland. The one in West Oakland had long since been demolished to make way for the projects. 
which were built in 19, the Acorn Projects, built in 1964. And so the only other one that possibly could remain is this house, this two-story green and white craftsman on MLK. And yet I couldn't find it. And when I looked at it on Google Maps, it kept putting me on the freeway. And I was like, that's weird. It's under the freeway. It's not on the freeway. Like, I know that corridor well. I go to and from work on it. I bike up and down it, et cetera. And then I realized that that place was also demolished in 1964 due to eminent domain when Caltrans took over that land to build the freeway. And so then I began to try and track down the family that had lived there. And I ran into a couple of dead ends. I was able to find the, the man whose name was listed. I was able to find his wife. I was able to find maybe a person who might have been a second wife, but I couldn't find any kids or anyone else. And yet what I did find is that where that house stood was now underneath the freeway. And underneath the freeway overpass, you, some of you may know that Oakland in the Bay Area has a pretty significant homeless population. And under freeway overpasses are where tent cities tend to spring up. And they kind of arise, you see one object, one discarded object there when you're driving by and you think, that's weird, why is that baby carriage there? Did someone leave it? It's got stuff in it. And then the next day you come by and there's two or three baby carriages and then pretty soon there's more and then there's a tent and then there's some objects and then next thing you know, a city has sprung up. And then it gets really big and then it starts to spill out off the sidewalk into the street and you kind of have to go around it and it's like a bustling community. And then one day you're coming home from work and you notice that there's a holdup and you see like down the, down the street in front of you where the cars are stopped, there's sirens and Caltrans trucks there. And you finally go by and you see that they're taking everything and throwing it away. And then it's empty for like a month. And then one night you're driving by and you see a stroller there. And this is the cycle that continues. And so at the very spot where this house had stood, a tent city had sprung up. So in my pursuit of the story about this house, which I couldn't find, I went through all these city of Oakland records. I found the sort of architectural records of the house, the remodelings, et cetera. Uh, and I went to this tent city and I interviewed this guy who I had always seen around town. And I started asking him his family's history. And it turns out he had grown up as a child in the 70s right around the corner from this house. And he vaguely remembered the people that lived there or in the in the in the. He grew up, his family grew up around the corner from the house, and he vaguely remembered the family that used to live there, but he wasn't sure, but I asked him to tell me his story, and he told me his story, and how his children had been scattered to the winds out of Oakland, they couldn't afford to live there, and he had one kid who was in Antioch, and one kid who he didn't quite know where he was, and he himself was barely hanging on. And so at the end of this essay, the, as, uh, as I was working on it, one day I came home, and I noticed I, that on my door there was an eviction notice. And uh, I was living in a three-bedroom apartment with my two kids, a two-story, three-bedroom apartment in my, with my kids. And I lived there for about five years. And we had this great landlord who really loved us. And every time I saw her, you guys are the best tenants I ever had. I hope you always stay here. I, I don't ever want to have another tenant who isn't you, is too much trouble. You guys are wonderful. I love your kids, so on and so forth. And then one day I came home and I found there was an eviction notice on my door for minor lease violation. She never talked to me. She never called me or anything like that. So I got this thing, and of course I went into panic mode. And I called her. She didn't answer, and I emailed her, and she never responded. And weeks went by, and I didn't hear from her. And so I went out, and I found a new place, much smaller. I had to change my childcare schedule and all this. And then the day that I signed my lease, I should say that she emailed me and told me that the eviction was rescinded, but it was too late. I was paying $2,000 for, <clears throat> for a three-bedroom house. 
And it should be noted that houses on the market when I went to Craigslist were going for four to $5,000 on that same block. So at the, that happened while I was working on this essay about essentially migration. And so at the end of the essay, I concluded, maybe this is a land that doesn't really have a place for anyone. I'm not sure. So what I'm going to read to you today is the opening section of this essay about a time in which I was taking my then dying mother across country during the last year of her life, <clears throat> and we ran into a snowstorm. There is one moment from the cross-country trip I took with my mother in 2007 that will probably forever live in my mind. We were on Highway 80 going through Nebraska in the middle of a blizzard. The road was invisible, buried under a sheet of snow. An occasional car or 18-wheeler dotted the side of the highway, spun out or waiting for the storm to pass, the people inside most likely freezing cold and silently contemplating, as I was, their fragility and mortality. My mother was dying of cancer. We did not get along very well. We never had, save for a few years in my early childhood when she and I were intermittently homeless together and we were all we had. Since then, our lives had gone in different directions. I had gone to live with different families, in some cases, seemingly the only black person in the entire world. For her part, who knows what she endured? Probably only she and those occasional friends and lovers she called late at night when her desperation for food or money had become too acute for her to keep it to herself, had any idea. Now I can imagine this, but I didn't used to be able to. It did not occur to me until very recently that my mother had an entire life of her own in those years she spent without me. In that moment, we were facing together a long and straight road, or rather, I was facing it alone. She was asleep in the passenger seat, we had stopped 60 miles or so earlier at a hotel to check at the internet and see how serious this storm was. All indications were that it was so intense that we should just chill in the lobby like everyone else. And it was a cozy scene. A vast array of travelers were convivial and talkative, standing on couches, standing near the fireplace, swapping tales of the earlier hours of their journeys, where they were coming from, when they first learned of the storm, when they decided to pull over, boots and sweaters galore, small talk something that had always made me uncomfortable, like I was faking or lying, the forced smiles and dull punchlines. I had always been this way, part snob, part frightened child. But there was another problem with staying in the lobby, something that made us infinitely more uncomfortable than small talk. We were the only black people there. We were used to operating in places like New York and DC and LA where we were rarely the only people of color in a room. In fact, we had purposefully built a life avoiding states like Nebraska, Wyoming, Montana, places that felt alien and potentially dangerous to us. I had only applied to schools in coastal, diverse cities. My mother had moved countless times in her life, but had always chosen metropolitan centers, places that she could barely afford. My wife and I struggled to make ends meet, renting overpriced apartments in what were considered sketchy neighborhoods in LA or Brooklyn, rather than taking the risk of relocating our mixed race family to more affordable places. You can get a three bedroom house in Nebraska for 200,000 exclamation point, the internet told us gleefully. And the people are kind, good American values. This was a nice idea, but it felt like it didn't always apply to us. 
I mean, sure, it was possible. We assumed most people were kindly and non-violent, the kind of people who would offer you a cup of coffee or a slice of cake uh, if you stopped by their house when your car broke down. But we knew there were other kinds of people, too, the kind who drag you from the back of a truck until your skin is ripped from your body. And the risk of running into that kind of person even once was far greater than any promise of affordable houses or good schools or, in the case of a blizzard, a warm hotel lobby. This is how the promise of America lands for us. It's all good, except not for you. Every idea of how great this country is or can be comes with a silent caveat, never spoken, but always felt. We are a simple country of good-hearted, upstanding people. We believe in justice and freedom, but you may be killed for being born. Even if you are an American, even if your family has been here since the very beginning, even if you were brought here against your will, built the country with your bare hands, overcame poverty, lynchings, and apartheid, even if you attended one of the most prestigious schools in the country, even if you are a kind and loving father who was just trying to get your dying mother safely back to your home so you can take care of her for the last months of your life, even then, you may be killed just for being born. So this is why, with my dying mother in the passenger seat of the car, I drove through a storm that turned the entire sky an impenetrable white. Slowly and carefully, my hands gripping the wheel, breathing to keep myself calm, giving just enough gas to keep from spinning out and to make sure we kept moving, we had to keep moving, no matter what. Even past the cars and trucks that littered the side of the road, having surrendered to the obvious authority of the sky. Thank you. So that piece is about space and place and ownership of land. And these are, um, this and many more are the themes of the work of Sandra Perry, who it is my pleasure to introduce to the stage uh, to talk about her work and answer my and ultimately your questions about these concepts and others, please welcome to the stage Ms. Sandra Perry. Hey. How you doing? Hey. <laughs> good yeah? Yeah. Good. Um, so how many of you have seen the Sandra Perry exhibit upstairs? Let's get it. Okay. So people have seen it. So for those who haven't, can you describe it somewhat? Yeah. Uh, so this is, uh, Eclogue for Inhabitability is the second in a series of work. I haven't decided how long the series is going to go. Um, uh, an eclogue is a pastoral poem. Uh, and so this piece kind of centers around this backhoe that is a sentient kind of being. Um, and the monologue that it's giving us um, is about its implication in the changing of cities. Um, and it kind of does this uh, a bit of morphing through time. It talks about um, some examples of machines like it being utilized to shift and change um, landscapes. So one of the examples it brings up is Seneca Village. Um, that was a predominantly African-American freed, um, freed black community where um, about um, um, 80th to 90th Street where 
uh, Central Park currently is. Um, and it was destroyed uh, to create the park through eminent domain. So there are a lot of kind of um, uh, fluid ideas between uh, terraforming, terraforming being the changing of an environment, usually um, like a, an exoplanet like Mars or something like that, um, and relating that to something like eminent domain. And one of the things I was really interested in with this piece is this idea of life as we know it, you know, like going to another planet and changing the habitat and not really knowing what life looks like there. So thinking that what you're doing is totally fine and cool and you're not like, you know, destroying any kind of like life forms, but how would we know what life looks like on another planet? Um, and relating that back to Earth, there are people who we don't consider life or alive. And so I was trying to kind of make these types of connections. That's my family. Um, <laughs> and so the piece kind of revolves around there. And then a couple of other ideas that I kind of, um, that I'm kind of putting into the stew around um, the maroon, um, the ocean as a modifier to culture, to people, um, uh, and to movement, um, and ideas of the flesh, standing and sitting in the flesh. Just like a basic overall. Nice. So you you describe. I want to go to this ocean modifier thing because when when you say ocean modifier to those of us who are not who who are not animators, mm -hmm. we think of uh, well we don't know what we think of. So it sounds like you're saying that that there's a double there's a play on words. The idea that like the ocean is a force which modifies life, which mm -hmm. I think um, we can all agree on. You think of the transatlantic slave trade. You think of immigration. The ocean is, in fact, a modifier. But mm -hmm. in addition to that, there is actually a thing in animation called an ocean modifier yeah. and that you make use of. Can you talk about that? Yeah, so I use a, a program called Blender. It's um, a 3D like um, um, animation software. It's free and open source to use. And there is a tool in this program called an ocean modifier. Um, a modifier is something that you can use in one of these programs in order to create whatever you, you kind of want. Um, and when I found that program, or when I found that kind of like tool in the program, something just kind of clicked. Um, I, I kind of think um, if it wasn't intentional, um, then there was some kind of like cosmic shit happening <laughs> with those programmers, because that's essentially what it is, yeah. you know? The ocean as the change agent for so much of what I'm interested in, really basing this in um, the transatlantic slave trade. Yeah, so, uh, you know, the, in, the, the, in like the piece that I just read and in a lot of my investigations around gentrification in Oakland, the thing that's most frustrating is this feeling that there is no place for me to land, mm -hmm. right? I'm like, okay, I did what you told me to do. I went to college, I got a good job, I'm on stage, I'm like, it's really good at what I do. I should be able to afford a place. Mm -hmm. That's what I. That's the promise, and yet somehow, some way, it always the universe always seems to figure out how to churn me out of my thing. And so I thought, boy, that's where that happened to me. But then I was thinking about, boy, that was the case with my mother. And then I was thinking about how my grandparents had to leave the South because they ran into life-threatening racist situations that forced them to flee under the cover of night. So they couldn't stay where they were. And the guy that I interviewed, who lived in the tent city. Not only could he not stay, his whole family couldn't stay. And then the people who lived in that house that I was looking for, 
they couldn't stay. And so all of this was shocking to me because I, it, it, it ran against this assumption that I have that I should be able to stay. And I wonder if you feel like there is a should there or is the reality that this land actually doesn't have a place for anyone, that all land is transient. I wonder how you feel about that. Um, I think that's true. Um, but I think that kind of appears to different people differently. So I think the more marginalized you are, the closer you are to the edges of, of instability. I think that this idea of having a place all of that is constructed through violence. I think the reason why the majority of white people can feel stable is because white supremacy, which is a, a tool of violence, allows this stability to happen. It creates the structure. That's, I, I, think, I think we're all kind of floating in free fall. And that the, the, only, the only way you can kind of like hold on to that illusion is through a violence, a structure of violence. So this brings up this notion of terraforming Mars, the idea that it's sort of, if you haven't admitted it to yourself consciously, you probably subconsciously admitted it to yourself. We're probably not long for this Earth. It's not going well. And for a lot of people, the, <laughs> sorry if I to burst in anyone's, rain in anyone's parade here, but it's not looking good. So, so, um, so, for a lot of people in the mind, the escape hatch is this idea that, well, we're gonna go to Mars. That's what's gonna happen. We're gonna get Mars going, figure it out, and we're gonna put the projects in place, and it's gonna work out. Mars is gonna be cool. And, in, <laughs> and implied in that is this idea that, is that gonna be the reality for everyone, mm -hmm. or is that not? Mm -hmm. um, yeah, just talk a little bit about how that for, factors into the way you consider this, this work. Mm -hmm. Well, I, I think a lot, well, I try not to, but I can't help it. I, I think a lot about Elon Musk. Yeah. And I think our, our first kind of conversation, like how just like mad he makes me. <laughs> you know, and we were talking about, you know, the reason why, you know, he's able to kind of like, maybe rope in is strong, but like um, to bring in all of these like really brilliant like scientists and engineers and all of these things is because there is an ideological vision to what SpaceX is, is doing, AKA they are going to, the, the, the end game is to colonize Mars and to extend the human race and all of these things. And I think the first time we talked, I, I've been thinking about what I know, you know, or like the edges of the things that I know. Um, and I can look back maybe five or seven years or maybe when I first kind of like entered college or something and I, could, I can see what I didn't know. And I can also see what I didn't know was possible. And so there's something about him that really pissed me off that this guy could do all of this imagining. Meanwhile, there were like 18-year-old Sandra Perrys who couldn't imagine themselves out of their neighborhood. That just pissed me off. Um, and then I read Parable of the Talents by Octavia Butler, which is a book that's a, it's in a series or three, I think she passed away before she was able to finish the third, which is about a religion that this young girl creates called Earthseed. And the um, kind of the end goal of this religion is to live in the stars. And so she made this in like, in 98 or something like that. Uh, also kind of, uh, 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 kind of 
what is it called when it's like a premonition of uh, of Donald Trump and Make America Great Again? There's this like uh, um, politician in this book who has this slogan, "Let's Make America Great Again." Um, and I, I had to kind of like reassess kind of a lot of my thinking around what it is to imagine and what it is to um, to have uh, to have that type of like expanded thought. But the thing that I think is is still there. Um, including a lot of the utopian ideas around technology, um, is that the ethics and the ways that we treat each other are somehow going to shift drastically just because we, we have another planet or just because we have another way to communicate. Um, and I think it's really dangerous. So yeah. yeah, so this brings me to this question of Af Afrofuturism, which is just on my mind only because I, I just did a piece for the New York Times Magazine um, about Black Panther before the movie came out, and mm -hmm. I tried to go into a much deeper tangent about Afrofuturism, but they wouldn't let me. And uh, but ever since then, it's been I've had like eighty pages, like, and then you know, and they were like, just, just the movie, guy. it's a Marvel movie, but uh, but. Um, but I do want to ask about that because one of the definitions that uh, occurred to me when I was, I interviewed Eve, Eve Ewing about this and she had this very interesting take that it wasn't just the imagining, you know, someone had said, well, like a guy I interviewed said, well, Afrofuturism is like an imagining of the future. We imagine ourselves in the future. It's the idea that it's the transgressive idea that blackness will survive in the future and maybe even win the future that will be there and that's mm -hmm. gonna be awesome. Uh, it's a representational concept and mm -hmm. Eve Ewing um, sort of uh, broke down this idea that buried in that is still a capitalist vision, mm -hmm. that the future is linear and that it means more awesome stuff and that, and that Afrofuturism means that we're going to have awesome stuff, but still it's awesome stuff is the thing of the future. And you go forward through time to more things and jetpacks and more like flying skateboards or what have you, more mm -hmm. objects of convenience that mark the passage of time mm -hmm. and that we're going to be in that. And mm -hmm. she was suggesting that Maybe it has to do with an African view of time as a whole. Time is circular. Things is reflective. Mm -hmm. um, and the, the future meeting the past. And that put me back onto Daughters of the Dust. And that put me back onto uh, Paradise. And that put me back, uh, not Paradise, uh, 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 Beloved. And that put me back onto mm -hmm. Toni Morrison's work. Mm -hmm. And so I wonder, first of all, my question is, do you consider your work part of Afrofuturism? <laughs> or do you embrace that term? Or do you find it even necessary or, or useful? Um, I'm like kind of all about convenience. I think that like calling something Afrofuturism means that the people who are interested in those types of things can find it. Uh, you know, it's like it's a hashtagging. Like, it's, like it's a hashtagging. Yeah. Uh -huh. I think that like um, sometimes language can kind of like close things down, but at the same time, I'm not. I'm not too. I'm not fronting. Like I don't. Oh, yeah, uh, right, right. Uh, Is that okay. <laughs> you know? So then, okay. You know? so, so, it's like I don't right. think I would kind of like categorize my work in that way. But if I wrote a book, and um, the the way to find it was through the metadata. Yeah. Then I would put Afrofuturism there because it's just about figuring out how to make things accessible. Right. In some way. Yeah. Right. So that so that can then gets to the second question for me, which is this way of imagining this mm -hmm. idea that um, that to imagine in and of itself we have this idea very much in America that to imagine is the greatest thing ever. Let's mm. your imagination flow like mm. Disney Imagineers, right? And mm -hmm. so what you're talking about in this with this Elon Musk thing. Is, is, a, is a pointed, strong critique of the freedom to imagine mm -hmm. as a representation of a kind of privilege. Mm -hmm. So I wonder, in your view, is there a way, is there a, is there a counter way to imagine? Mm -hmm. Or is the notion in and of itself fully corrupted in our context? Ah. 
<laughs> Did you get that? Ah. Anybody? Damn. You know, I think, you know, I think some Time Lord stuff needs to happen. <laughs> you know, I like some real kind of like collapsing of the past, present, and future, mm. you know, um, needs to happen. So when I was talking about um, uh, like the... Um, the the new invention of the thing that will make us see each other yeah. as human or yeah. something like that. Blah, blah, blah. Um, I think a lot of what we can kind of like learn is through a, a direct kind of interrogation of what's what's happened in the past. Mm. Um, and so I think that acknowledging those things doesn't close down imagining. Mm. I think it kind of it it opens us up. Mm. It opens us up to way more possibilities. Mm. Um, we were talking before about kind of my like obsession with objects yeah. and the labor of objects yeah. um, and why those things need to be acknowledged because at a certain point we were objects. And when we don't acknowledge those types of things um, or kind of like kind of hone in or try to really kind of close um, close things down with like this, um, this, this, this thing about kind of like the human um, we forget that a lot of these kind of um, these these categories can be shifted by whoever's in power to decide right. who lives where. I want to stop you there to get to get people caught up because yeah. we had we were on a whole thing. And oh, so yeah. you so in this in this piece you have this backhoe. And for those of you who've seen, who've seen it, it's sitting in the room. And the first image that I or the sort of feeling that I had when I saw it is like it's a retired backhoe. It's a backhoe that is like sort of done its service and it's retired. I was I had this Disney Pixar vision. You know how they sort of like um, anthropomorphize these objects. Here's the here's the old backhoe that has done all this work and now it's retired and it's, it's sitting up in a museum. And if you could only have seen its days. And so I was thinking about it as um, a labor completed. And Sandra said, No, no, no. Now it's involved in a new kind of labor, which is the labor it takes to be witnessed, to be in this exhibit for people to come and envision it. And then that, that to me had to do with like the transfer, the transformation of physical labor to service labor, to you know, conceptual labor. But um, in that process, it occurred to me that in my conversations with you, it has felt like you take time to consider the sentience of objects. Mm -hmm. And it reminded me of this question about whether or not you could keep Android in a basement, whether that's morally, whether it's that's slavery or not. Mm -hmm. And a friend of mine brought this up. Like there was something about, we saw something on Twitter and she was like, that makes me so sad. This thing is like in the basement and they turn off the lights and they get sad. And first I was like, it's a robot. Let's like relax. Let's not get to, but, but she was like, you know, she was really insistent on in this. And that, that made me think mm -hmm. about the value of giving of, of, respecting the sentience or feelings of objects. And then you explained that the reason why that's important is because we are objects. Mm -hmm. And at least in slavery and its iterations in the future, we were objects in slavery. Yeah. And our sentience was discounted. We were androids. We were androids. We were pieces of machinery. And so when you don't acknowledge the objects, anyone can, you know, be moved into that category and be used. You can be completely used. And so it's it's necessary. And so that's like to, to answer your 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 previous question, it's like that's why we go into the past. Because 
This is not a brand new world, and that's okay. We're still dealing with the same relationships to power and to what our bodies produce over and over again, whether you're talking about a sentient piece of technology or a sentient piece of technology that lives in a black body. So this reminds me a little bit of the critique of neo-capitalism mm -hmm. or freedom through uh, capitalism. Mm -hmm. The idea, uh, and I've, I talk to some people and there are people in my life and people who I have these ongoing debates about who say, well, listen, the, the way we're gonna get liberated is to essentially capitalize and own the means of production. We have to earn the kind of wealth that allows us to set the standard. And, um, and so far we don't have that kind of wealth. And so if we are able to gain that kind of wealth as black people in specific in these conversations, then, well, then we'll be where we're supposed to be. And so the, the counter argument to that is the idea that, um, that in order for any of that wealth to be created, oppression must be, mm -hmm. must be exacted. Mm -hmm. And so like there's, in this view, at least that you're laying out, there, until you consider the sentience of the oppressed, there's no freedom. Is that essentially, am I hearing that? I think so. I think it's there, you know, it's like, you know, um, like freedom and liberation feel like different things to me, mm -hmm. you know? And so freedom is relegated on a system that allows you to be free. And then it, that's, Break that down is, for me. So yeah, me, yeah my, tell me. Yeah, oh, I think like you need to speak to the mic. Sorry, I'm just thinking and talking. Yeah. So what's the difference between freedom and liberation in your view? I think freedom has something to do with the structure that you're in. Mm. So it's a relationship to power, you mm. know? It's like you are free and then this is here. You are free and then someone is not free mm. or something like that. Mm -hmm. That's what I'm just ta talking mm -hmm, and thinking. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And I'm thinking that liberation is the place where we need to go. Now, I don't know what, like, I'm not exactly sure. <laughs> how to get there. How that works. Okay. Yeah, how that works. Um, and yet you follow this trail, this thought trail through recognizing the labor of objects and people, which, which is important because mm -hmm. not just like, oh, think about this chair, it's doing all this work. Mm -hmm. Who will think of the chairs? It's rather this idea that, that humanity has in its past treated us as chairs. Exactly. And that's what I was kind of talking about with this relationship to the, the human. If there's a human, because we're all animals, right? But we're, we don't call ourselves animals. We call ourselves human. Yeah. So if there's a human, then there's a non-human. Mm. And a lot of times that non-human isn't a cow or a fox or a cat or a, a crawfish. Mm. A lot of times that's another mm -hmm. homo sapien. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of relegated. The idea of the human is relegated to someone not being human. Mm. So someone's always under the foot. Someone's always being oppressed. Mm -hmm. And that's what I'm kind of like interested in. So instead of trying to kind of like lift, which I think is the thing that in, makes sense, it actually makes a lot of sense mm -hmm. to kind of like lift us up into this kind of space. It seems like there's always someone who gets left out. So to take it back to this notion of space and of uh, not just like outer space like Mars, but the, the space that we compete for in Oakland or in mm -hmm. Seneca Village or mm -hmm. even in parts of Seattle. Um, I guess my question is, is there a way for, because I think people are just like, but I just need a deal in an apartment. What did I do? You know what I mean? Like, is there, a, and, and there's a feeling that that's an individual right, that mm -hmm. that's a person, that's a, 
civil, not civil liberty, but a human right mm-hmm. to have housing. Mm-hmm. Is there a way, in your view, for that human right to be um, granted that isn't inherently oppressive? I'm not sure. I one of the things that like I've, I've mentioned a couple of times is it's a really specific example, but um, I travel around a lot for work, doing these kind of things or making shows or visiting with students. And it seems like there's always like the same story, like whoever is picking me up from the airport or a meeting, it's like, oh, I just moved or I just had to move or I think I'm about to be displaced, all of these types of things. And a lot of times, um, like kind of these revitalization um, projects in neighborhoods um, do this thing where they're like, uh, they bring in artist housing or something like that, just a couple of units of of artist housing. Um, inside of like a regular, you know, regular schmegular type of unit or something like that. Um, and one of the examples um, that I think that we should push for is is not to have that. Like, what if, you know, because I'm a working artist. What if working artists who are broke were aligned with poor people? Mm. So you're not being utilized as a tool that signifies some type of kind of cultural. Mm. Um, uh, uh, cultural placement mm-hmm. um, that says to people who have money, hey, this place has culture, this type of thing. Um, that's, a, that's a really kind of like specific example, but I think it kind of talks to these ways that we can, maybe, I don't know if, if solidarity is the word, mm. but um, like real actionable ways that we can kind of like collapse our being together, mm. you know, mm. in order to do something together. It, this idea of being the artist in that space reminds me of the way in which you identify labor mm-hmm. in, in all things. And so to be an artist in that space is to perform a kind of labor for people, is to say, like, hey, I'm the person, like, I do the job. It's almost like you're a character in Westworld. You know, you're mm-hmm. like, welcome to, like, downtown arts world. Like, mm-hmm. I play the role of the artist in your building. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. I have a loft, and I wear I paint on my clothes, and so this gives you the feeling that you're there, but you're sort of, like... You're in labor in that sense. I find that kind of yeah, amazing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah fascinating. Yeah. Um, so uh, I want to ask you about a, a very specific thing that happens in your piece mm-hmm. that I think is is about a bigger thing. It's just that you use. Um, tell me about the way you use the kind of uh, animated image of your brother. Yeah. In the piece, yes. and tell us the backstory of that. So this is actually. Um, this is a piece called It's in the Game, Marigag for, for a Vitrine or Projection. And um, I started making these avatars of my brother um, while I was making this piece. He played um, Division I basketball for Georgia Southern University um, and was in two of the March Madness games, uh, 2009 and 2010. And there was a huge class action lawsuit against it. The video games. Video games, I'm yeah. sorry, the video games um, uh, produced by EA Sports. Uh, And there was a huge class action lawsuit a couple of years ago against EA Sports and the NCAA um, because they were using the likenesses of the college athletes without their permission and without compensating them. Um, It was settled in 2015. It should also be noted, I just want to interrupt, that Mm -hmm. college athletes can't be paid for their labor. There's some weird law preventing that, even though the last two uh, NCAA tournaments have generated over a billion dollars apiece in revenue. Mm -hmm. And there's there's a really good like introductory Sean King article about um, some of the lawsuits uh, or, um, against the NCAA 
and how they're fighting that lawsuit with uh, this, uh, the statues um, in the 13th Amendment about how you can use um, uh, free prison labor. So they're using this statute in order to um, say that they can, they can have these um, college athletes um, work for free. Let that sink in. Um, so anyway, this piece, this piece was um, uh, uh, kind of collapsing a bunch of things. Of, uh, this is him in the game. Um, and um, to kind of like counteract this, this avatar that was made in the game, I started making them. And um, just kind of playing in the software, I realized that you could mount a camera inside of the, the hollow shell of the, of the avatar. So I wound up making all of these videos of the avatar moving around and you're basically inside of the head and you're see, seeing it blink and you're seeing the, 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 the view of the avatar from the, the inside. Yeah. Yeah. Woe was right. Yeah. 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 Um, and I mean that that uh, yeah. I um, it, it it does again keep returning me to this notion of person as object. Mm -hmm. And I guess part of what's striking to me because you introduced that to me this morning, mm -hmm. and I've been sitting with it all day. And what's striking to me is how quickly and easily my mind wraps around the idea of person as object. Mm -hmm. That it doesn't resist that as a theory. And that has to do with some training I've apparently received mm -hmm. being a part of capitalism, mm -hmm. that I can see a person as an object, or I can see, in this case, it's, I'm like, it's not your brother, it's an, it's a, it's a, it's an image of your brother, mm -hmm. but once we get inside that image, it, it is no longer just an image of your brother, it's mm -hmm. now something more, and how far are we willing to see it as an object? Mm -hmm. um, and, and before we open up to think to uh, audience questions and kind of get your questions ready here, I want to ask one last question about the labor itself. Mm -hmm. Just my, for my own interest, I walk into that room and I see like a, a backhoe that was like 10,000 pounds. I mean, this is like mm -hmm. a, you get stuff in there. Mm -hmm. And you've talked a little bit about how you physically created all this animation, but tell me a little bit about the labor of creating these objects. Sure. Yeah, there's a lot. So um, I went to grad school and I met someone there who um, does this type of work for artists and makes tables for muse like uh, for museums or fancy restaurants. And so we've had this relationship for the last three years, or I don't think Sarah would like me to say this, but um, I would. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm really into using things that exist as what they are in the world and then doing the morphing. So I will like go through Amazon or I will do an image search and I will find a bunch of things, and I'll say to him, this is what I want to do. I want to like combine all of this stuff, and he'll tell me if it's like feasible, and then I'll send everything to a studio, and we'll start working on it. Wow. Um, and I, this, this is my, this is my it's, first. It's a, in a sense, a, a kind of remix. Yeah, it, that's, a, that's exactly what it is. Mm. Yeah, and I'm like super into that. Yeah. Um, and yeah, and this is my first uh, museum show, and we had to ship this thing from the East Coast or, or drive it from the East Coast. It was an entire, wow. entire spectacle, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, which, was, which was really interesting to me. And I'm at this place where I, I've just started kind of like doing solo shows and working with these and working with museums. And it's a very different type of kind of like labor, not just for me, but for the people who work inside of the institutions. Mm. You can see it all. It's very, it's very interesting. Yeah. This is the last one. This is a part of a series, mm -hmm. you tell me. Yeah. Where do you want to go with this series? Mm -hmm. How do you want to resolve it, I think, is a question that I'm curious about. 
I don't know. I don't know. Um, I've been trying to think through kind of, I'm really interested in kind of like where the formal can meet um, kind of content in really kind of dynamic ways that make sense, the same ways that Carrie James Marshall um, kind of like makes work. His work is just like good. It's just like so good. Yeah. It's just like, it does it all, yeah. you know? <laughs> and so I've been thinking about um, something that I've, I've never really done is kind of um, making something um, like pretty narrative. Mm. So I've been thinking about like a filmic form instead of an installation form. Um, but everything is kind of like wavy, you know? Everything's still a little wavy. Yeah. Um, there was this, um, uh, this story about these, um, these North Korean monuments that have been popping up in different parts of um, Africa. Um, uh, the, uh, what is it called? It's called the Something Renaissance like uh, monument that's in Senegal. Um, and North Korea um, has these relationships with these countries where they're making the monumental sculpture um, in the same style um, of, uh, of North Korean monumental sculpture, except kind of like, uh, like adding on like the heads with like um, like um, African like phenotypes and things like that, and there's been a lot of criticism um, because um, there have been reports that these sculptures are being used as um, tools to launder money and to um, exchange um, natural resources. Uh, so there is something about kind of that moving of the earth. And then also the fact that they, they're making these sculptures there. So they have the smelting there. It's an entire kind of production that happens on kind of um, uh, on site, which I was, I've been thinking is really, is really interesting, but I've just kind of like, you know, grazed the surface of that. Yeah. Thank you so much. All right, at this time we're gonna open the floor for questions. I don't think we need a microphone for, for the recording, or we do need a microphone. Okay, so who's gonna, I guess. So if you have a question, raise your hand. Make sure you're speaking in the mic. Have a question. Great. Um, so I like that question about the distinction between freedom and liberation. Um, so I just wanted to think about, I guess I just wanted to hear more on like the possibilities of collective liberation and where you see like the big opportunities right now. Uh, yeah, I don't, I personally, I'm, I'm sitting here on the stage wondering exactly how dour my worldview truly is. I'm like rating my dour right now, just in my head. Like, um, because I, it's interesting that you use the modifier collective liberation. Because I think in general, we tend to view liberation as an individualistic thing. It's I'm gonna get freedom. It's like, I'm gonna get free and then I'm gonna get some other people free. And, uh, and that's, those are the heroic stories, even among, even among African-American, even among blackness, there's this idea that like, this is Harriet Tubman, she made it out and then she went back and she got the people and she brought the people out. And, but this still is an individualistic hero, heroic narrative in the way that we recycle that story that is very much in line with what our society tells us is the way things should go. Like individual folks need to be badass and then lead other people into badassery. And, but you bring up this notion of collective liberation. And so it makes me wonder, and I don't know the answer to it, if the opportunity is in some kind of advanced notion of collective. 
in for me personally, <laughs> for me individually, to break down whatever keeps me from feeling a collective with you or with you or with you. Consciously, not like let's all love each other, like a certain person who won't be named. We agreed we would not bring him up on the stage. But um, but uh, but that but that but he, that's he's a stand-in for a larger shitty conversation about how love can heal all and something. And so maybe if the opportunity is there, it has to do with a much more disciplined um, notion of collective. Those are my thoughts. I like that. I think that's good. Um, Maya White. Maya White is doing a lot of work um, around, around what? Here's what she's doing, or some of the things that she's doing. Um, she's, she's doing work around this um, person in Harlem who, maintain, who stays anonymous, who is teaching people how to live online or be online and be safe um, and uh, stay away from surveillance. Um, she's also doing research on these like electricity collectives that are getting people off of the grid. Um, I, that's where, that's the, that's the stuff that I think I'm super interested in. And that's in plus, the... plus what you said. Yeah. <laughs> and I yeah. just want yeah, those, those, those electricity collectives are in the South, and they're primarily for older people. So this is not something where it's like the young people have this crazy radical notion. It's older people who live in the South and, and have sketchy electricity, which is a life or death matter when you're looking at, you know, 98 to 101 degrees. That's, what, that's who this uh, electricity collective is about. Yeah, yeah that, that feels really good. Yeah. Thank you. Another question over here. Hello, um, thank you for sharing tonight. Um, you mentioned something about the labor of being witnessed um, and you got me thinking just about the necessity of it and how power plays a part in who needs to put out that labor and I'm just wondering your thoughts on that. Mm -hmm. um, my thoughts are kind of around what it is to be hypervisible. Uh, for me, hypervisibility is about being seen and unseen at the same time, or whenever it's kind of convenient, you know? Um, so, like, I think one of the conversations we were talking about is like, um, or one of the things we were talking about is about what it, what it means to make work for black people. Um, what it means to privilege um, that kind of experience. And even in that, you wind up being a vessel um, to be witnessed, to be seen. Um, I think the way that I kind of like get through that is by privileging, it's like really kind of a meditation type of thing. It's like I go into the studio or I touch the computer and I am doing this for my mother and my grandmother, and my aunt, and my cousin, Akaija. That's what I do. Everything else outside of that is what it is. It's like the conditions of the world. But I have done a thing that is highly intentional and for these people. I hope that, I hope that answers your question. 
Um, yeah, I'm going to add to that. Actually, I'm going to tomorrow. I'm going to be on not just self promote, but tomorrow I'm going to go on KUOW and talk about hypervisibility with. Uh, Amani Sims, I think, is the poet's name. Uh, yeah, and I think it's going to air on Monday, and so we're, I'm excited about that. And this—that is this notion of—and yeah, it is what you said. This idea that you were seen and not seen. I think of the Invisible Man, the Ralph Ellis novel, as the embodiment of this concept that you both exist and don't exist. But I don't have to. I mean, you're, everyone sees you, but no one sees you. They see what you represent. So you're like a really big projection screen with nothing on it except for what's in the other person's head. <laughs> but you take up a lot of space. Mm -hmm. And so that person's projection takes up a lot of space in your life. Mm -hmm. And I didn't, that I didn't learn from reading a book. That I learned from living around white people for 43 years. <laughs> All right, another question on this side. <clears throat> Talking about the human as object, where would robots come into this? As an avatar or as an imitation? Only, only uh, recognizable just as an imita imitation of something human, or is it something all of its own? Yeah. Um, I think I'm really interested in what, what things do and what people do. So I would, I would think about the labor. I should, should I explain more? Uh, like, um, you know, like, is, is a robot a human? Like, is, the, is, a, is a robot, um, uh, does a robot have feelings? All of these things. I think they're, they're, they're things I'm obviously interested in, but I think I'm more so interested in what, what are they producing and what are they doing? And how is that affecting me? And how is it affecting everyone else? It's a, it, in a lot of ways, it's similar to all of the things that have been uh, you know, happening for, for a very, very long time, um, but have been in the news lately about, I'm just going to do it, um, 45. And the, the question around is, like, if he's a racist, you know? And it's like, we don't know what's in. So 45 is a, is, is a robot. 45 is the robot that we're talking right. about. It's like, like. Is he human? Is he a Cheeto? Is, does, does he have, do you know, like all of these things. What we know is what, is what he does, you know? And that's the only way we can kind of like judge, judge him. So that's what I think about when I, when I also think about these other things that are like very different, you know, um, about these like, um, these far off questions around like, you know, machinery and, you know, um, and how they can exist in the world. What, what does it do? Like, what, what does it do, you know? So a lot of it comes down basically to labor. Yeah, that's, that's labor. all, that's like. That's what, <laughs> well, that's what makes, yeah. it, that's what makes yeah. it authentic. It has to have, it has to be working to well, be I don't, authentic. I'm, I'm not interested in authenticity, and I don't think, and I would, uh, like, <laughs> like I, would, I would hope that, like, um, having to produce something isn't the thing that makes you kind of like authentic or like worthy of life or anything like that. Um, but I think it's, it's a, it's a, it's a pulse. It's a, it's something that you can, that you can understand that is also in relationship to other things that do things. Yeah, no, this, I, this does remind me of something that someone told me in an unrelated thing, a sentence. <laughs> someone said something bad was happening and I was like, why is this happening? And she was like, why is that a spiritual question? And I was like, 
really annoyed by that, but that was years ago, and I still think about it. I don't know if it's true or not, but it reminded me of that. Um, but this other thing about I want to I want to go back to this thing about do robots have feelings? The thing is when my when I saw that video of like it might have been Sophia the android who was like when the lights go off I feel sad and I was like yeah it's creepy you know and my friend was like no we have to like that's that's so sad they put her in the basement and they turn off the lights on her and I was like no we can't have that she can't have feelings because in my head then they'll rise up and take over I can't let them have feelings because then we're done for and I was like, boy, you sound just like a colonizer, don't you? <laughs> That's a colonizer shit right there. And so, so, I, don't, so I don't think it's, I, I agree that it's not necessarily, that, that the, the core of the question isn't like, what goes on in the soul? Um, you know, but I do think that there is something about the steadfast refusal of sentience, or me, or, which is to say meaning, the where we choose to apply or not apply meaning is not just like factual, it's preservational and it's, it, can, it, it can be oppressive. Um, yeah, and then whenever I get hung up on whether or not robots have feelings or not, I go back to something my 13-year-old son was really hung up on when he was in sixth grade, which is like, what if we're all robots that, <laughs> you know, like, what if that's how this whole thing started and it's just been all these, like, you know, thousands of years and now we think that we're running around. And I was like, that's, go to bed. That's just freaking me out. <laughs> but when I sit with that, I'm like, okay, if that's true, which I can't prove it's not, and actually that kind of makes sense if you really sit with that, then it, then it releases me from this fear of what if the other gains sentience because if the other gains sentience, well, then this is it. Time for one more question. You had your hand raised. <laughs> yes, um, I had a question about your ideas regarding finding a place for every person. I am in a, I'm a renter here in Seattle, and you know the rent situation here. I'm also an artist in artist housing, so I was quite interested in hearing more of your thoughts about that, but I am interested in finding a place for every person in the society that every person should have a space to live and a space to exist. And I wanted to hear your thoughts about how that can be accomplished. I think that, I think that like physically, infrastructure-wise, I, I, I think that that exists. I think it exists. And so I think the question is, so why isn't this happening? I think my my critiques of artist housing in particular um, is that there are it's often used as a marketing tool to bring in um, uh, higher sorry um, higher income people into an area as a as a hey this is a this is a space of culture. I think what we're what's really happening is that there are poor people who happen to be artists right. <laughs> who should be in solidarity with other poor people who happen to be this and that and that and the other. And that's a way that we can refuse um, kind of a, uh, a weaponization of like what we do. <laughs> so so that's, 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 all I, that's all I meant by that. I, it's just, I think it's just one way to kind of like get that through. Um, yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah, and I mean, but like, yeah, and the hard part of that too was like, okay, so where are you gonna live? You know what I'm saying? Like, I mean, that that is becomes a real thing. And if you're an artist, and then someone is like, yeah, because you're an artist, you can afford this centrally located, central heated, like nice place for this income. You know, because you're an artist, mm -hmm. I I think it's hard to say I refuse this on the grounds that I wish solidarity with. You know, mm -hmm. I think that's I think that is the way in which capitalism makes labor and weapons of us all, makes labor, makes objects and weapons of us all. I think, you know, that's the methodology by which that happens. I think, I think that's absolutely true. And I think the other thing to remember is that like, that's never, it's like, it's, it's never gonna be like a solid thing. It's like once you're utilized and you're there for a set, for a, for an amount of time, that's not gonna be necessary anymore. And then you're gonna be out. So I think that it's, it's, it's just a, it's kind of like this, the cycle, which again feeds back into this, you know, you need housing, you need all of this. And we were the, I live in Perth Amboy, New Jersey, my hometown. I live at my mom's house. Um, and right across the street from my mom's house, they started building these tennis courts. There were already tennis courts on the other side of the street and they built extra ones. And they refused the building of, um, uh, instead of the tennis courts, of a basketball court because it would bring in the wrong type of people. And so we're just waiting. We're just waiting for the rent to rise. It's that we can see it. We can see it. It's already happening. Um, and and so and so now I'm just in a we need a place that we're gonna need a place to live. How do we get everything out of the attic? <laughs> you know, all of these tiny, all of these things that, you know, that feel that feel super small or having to you know, take care of my mom in the next 15 years? You know, how am I gonna pay off $180,000 in debt? You know, how am I gonna do that and be happy, you know, or, or do any of these things? And I, I'm, I'm not completely sure, but one of the things I do know is that being with people and, and, and sharing that, sometimes that like, sometimes the misery, you know, but also, but also, thinking through different ways of being, whether that is through with a beer <laughs> um, and then kind of like blacking out afterwards or not, <laughs> you know, or not, it's helping. And so I have, to, I, have to, I have to think that there's something about that of being together, there's something about that that is going to help. That's going to be that shifting that change. This idea of the, of of the community of the collective. I don't know what that is though. I don't know what it is yet. That's the other thing. I pr I'm pretty sure that there are people who are doing this, like we're talking about with Maya. That those are really amazing, actionable things that people have going on in these pockets. And I think that the pockets are very close to each other. You know. Yeah. Yeah. That seems like a wonderful note to end. Do you have any final words, Carvel? Are you good? Uh, you, you guys are awesome. <laughs> so big thanks to our friends at Jetty, um, Closer Than They Appear, artist Sandra Perry. Let's give them a big round of applause. <laughs> if you haven't seen Sandra Perry's exhibition, it's up for a few more weeks and figuring history closes in a few weeks. Um, and then listen to Closer Than They Appear. It's on iTunes and a number of different platforms. So thanks so much for coming and joining us tonight. Good night.